text this evening is John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 60. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 60 through the end of the chapter, verse 71. So the second of a two-part series on this section of verses, the title being Differing Responses to the Word. Hear God's word beginning at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Many in the evangelical church world tell us that people have a free will by which they can choose Christ and be saved. And it is to be noted that the Bible doesn't ever use the wording free will. Now, of course, there are ideas and there are concepts that we believe are true and are real, even though the Bible doesn't use the specific word that we use for them, like, for example, the word trinity. The word trinity is not found in the Bible, but... The Bible, we believe, does teach that our God is triune, one God in three persons. And so the question we have regarding free will is that even if the Bible doesn't use that term, does the Bible teach that man's will is free? The Bible does talk about man's will, but is that will free? And it can be rightly argued that Adam and Eve had a free will in their pre-fall condition in which they were able to make decisions free of the influence of a sin nature. They were free to obey God or not. But for us and the world of today, the question is whether we in a post-fall world have a free will. And what the Bible makes clear is that in our post-fall world, man is not saved because of an autonomous act of the human will. This truth was already declared back in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where we have these words, but to all who did receive him, that is the Lord Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, as well as in Romans and other places as well, but in particular I'm thinking of a couple of passages that teach that salvation ultimately occurs because of the will of God rather than because of the will of man. Now man's will is involved in salvation, but the relationship between man's will and God's will is that God's will makes man's will willing to receive Christ 
uh, to choose Christ and receive salvation. The issue is whether man's will will choose Christ apart from God changing man's will. And the testimony of scripture is that God is the one who has to act upon us and change our wills before we will make the right decision regarding Christ. And so from that point of view, our wills are not free. Uh, by nature, after the fall in Adam, our will is in bondage to our sinful depravity until God in his grace frees our wills to choose Christ. This is, for example, the teaching of 1 Corinthians 1.30, where it says, and because of him, that is because of God, the apostle says, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, and being in Christ Jesus means to be joined to him by faith in a saving relationship, and we are told that this is not because of us, but because of God. Yes, you are joined to Christ by faith, and faith involves the exercise of your will, but faith, including the proper exercise of your will, these things are gifts of God's grace. And it's because of God, because of his spirit at work in regeneration, causing us to be born again, making us new creatures in Christ, that we end up choosing Christ unto salvation. And this is confirmed in Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, where Paul is discussing how people become true children of Israel, true sons of Abraham, and it's, that happens because of God's sovereign will to save whom he decides to save. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and what's the it there that Paul's talking about? It's salvation, it's, it's becoming a true child of Abraham by faith. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There are people who say, well, if man doesn't have a free will, then he's only a robot. And then there's no reason to preach the gospel, no reason to call people to faith. But that is not how Jesus operated. He called sinners to believe in him. He told them that he is the source of eternal life, the bread of life, and that those who come to him in faith and in that way feed on his flesh and drink his blood, which is to take Jesus to themselves, to unite themselves with him spiritually by faith, looking to him to nourish them spiritually and to give them eternal life, that if they will go to Jesus in this way, he will in fact satisfy them with righteousness and life. And so there is this call to come to him and believe upon him that is present throughout this section, this chapter of verses. And what strikes me is how Jesus doesn't do what so many so-called evangelists do today. So many evangelists today call people to make a decision about Christ, which is itself, in a sense, okay, but the distinct impression, if not outright declaration, is that man has a free will, and that it's up to man whether or not he will be saved. And again, there's a sense in which that is true. No one who is saved is saved apart from a decision to receive Christ. And actually, there are a few exceptions to that. You think of an infant, an elect infant that's saved, or somebody who's mentally impaired who is elect and is saved by God. They are saved apart from any decision 
to receive Christ. But basically, most of the time, no one is saved apart from a decision to receive Christ. But what is implied or stated by so many is that man has an autonomous ability without God, without the Holy Spirit, to stand in judgment over Christ and the gospel, and that these people have the ability to decide for themselves whether or not they want to be saved, that this is truly up to them. And they think that's what's, that, that, that that's what's required, and that is what they mean by a free will. As though man is spiritually good, as though man is capable of choosing the right path for himself to bring himself into a state of salvation by his own ability to make the right decision. And the distinct impression is that God is on the sidelines in the work of salvation. Yes, he's made salvation possible. He's provided a way for man to escape from sin. But in the end, it's up to man to lay hold of this salvation that's available and be saved. And so Christ is there on the sidelines waiting and hoping. There are even songs along these lines of Christ waiting and hoping that man will make the right decision. Unable, we are told, to make man believe or even to know who will believe because that would be a violation of man's free will. And this is not always straight out said, though sometimes it is. If people believing in this kind of free will were consistent, upon a person choosing Christ, the people around him who are hoping that he would make the right decision would praise him. They would be shaking his hand and patting his back saying, good job. And he would respond, thank you. Yes, somehow I made the right decision. Or, thanks for presenting the gospel so clearly and persuasively that I couldn't help but believe. And the accolades would go back and forth about how great man is to have made such the right decision on such an important matter. Now, thankfully, I've never witnessed that kind of an exchange. And it must be because people know that to talk that way doesn't fit with salvation by grace, and they know better. And yet it fits with their theology if they were consistent. I do think of the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. That statement is repeated several times and then concludes, no turning back, no turning back. And I've often thought about the spirit in which that song could be sung and perhaps is sung by some. Is that song praising man's decision to follow Jesus with a strong emphasis upon what I have done? Or is the song simply reflecting upon the decision which all of us Christians have made and how we are glad we made that decision and we're determined to continue in that decision because of how great our Savior is and because we know there is salvation and no other? I think it's possible to sing that song knowing in the back of your mind that it's God's grace that enabled you to follow Jesus. But the lack of clarity on these things And the lyrics of that song is why it's not one of my favorites. I'm afraid that for some, they sing it as a song celebrating the triumph of man's will. But the point to get back to it is that Jesus doesn't present himself as the bread of life that man needs for eternal life in a way that appeals to man's ego. He doesn't present himself that way uh, um, to, to people who want to think that they are spiritually good or worst case scenario, spiritually sick but are able to decide their own spiritual destiny. But to the contrary, Jesus has made these startling statements back in verse 37. All that the Father gives me 
will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He then further clarified the matter in verse 44, no one can come to me. There's no ability to come to me, he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's in, that is in our section of verses this evening. And uh, he's, he says, this is why I told you this. Well, what, is he, uh, what he has just said makes sense when we and when they remember that coming to Jesus has been granted by the Father. That's what he's saying. What he's just said makes sense. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Well, what has he just said? He has just said, it is the Spirit who gives life, and that the flesh is no help. He has just said that the words that he has spoken are spirit and life, and yet many of those to whom Jesus is speaking would not believe in him. The problem is that the words of Jesus are spirit and life, but only to those who believe. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus are never understood spiritually, and the result is that such listeners take offense, which is the response that Jesus is confronting in the, this, in the first section of these verses. This need of spiritual understanding in order to receive Christ. Jesus explains, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I dare say there would be many um, evangelists today who would say Jesus is making a dreadful mistake here if he wants these people to choose him. He's telling them that they don't have the ability to choose them on their own. And how offensive. He needs to be appealing to their will. But of course, we should repudiate anyone who would think that they know better than Christ how to do evangelism. At the same time, I think it's natural for us to wonder what we are to take from Jesus' method and why this is his method. It seems counter, counterproductive to our natural way of thinking. To call people to come and yet to tell them they can't come unless the Father draws them seems to be telling people there's nothing really for you to do but just sit back and wait for the drawing of the Father. And yet we know that is not what Jesus is saying. That is not what he's intending to say because all through these verses, Jesus holds his audience responsible for their unbelief as he calls them to come to him. The very fact that he's interacting with them over who he is and the way to eternal life shows that this call to them matters. So what's going on? Well, the problem that is afflicting these people who won't believe is a spiritual one, and Jesus' message is getting right at the problem. And the problem is that they think way too highly of themselves, which is called pride. And this pride is manifested in their thinking that they have the ability to evaluate who Jesus is, and they are going to evaluate him according to their own reasoning, their own thinking, their own discernment, and they think they have the ability to do all of that accurately. And remember how Jesus says the flesh is no help at all in terms of having the spirit and life, verse 63. Well, they think their flesh is absolutely capable of meeting their spiritual needs. And so there they are, pridefully standing in judgment over Jesus, as though they have the right and authority and ability to decide their own spiritual destiny through their own human minds and wills and desires. They think they are autonomous when it comes to salvation. 
And ironically, they are thinking exactly like so many evangelicals do today about man in relation to Christ and salvation. But notice, Jesus will have none of it. It will not be allowed. God will not tolerate man's boasting about any kind of role in his own salvation. For salvation is about God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ as a God of grace, saving sinners who do not deserve to be saved and who cannot save themselves. And so what is happening is that Jesus is confronting people who have a very proud, autonomous attitude who are not really hearing. They don't want to hear what Jesus is saying. They find his sayings hard, remember, back in verse 60. And they are offended by him and his message. And Jesus gets at the heart of the matter, which is them thinking that they have the ability, they think, to properly discern spiritual matters for themselves. And as a way to confront their pride, he reminds them that they're not going to be able to come to him unless it is granted them by the Father. And the message in this is that until they admit their spiritual poverty, utter poverty, they can be sure the Spirit is, at not, is not at work in them, and without the Spirit, they do not have life. Now let it be stated clearly that if someone was to respond to these words of the Lord in humility, that of course Jesus would receive him. If, if a sinner were to say to Jesus, I know I can't save myself. I know I'm so sinfully depraved that I can't do anything good. I need you to give me faith and repentance. I need your spirit working in my heart in order to have eternal life. I have nothing good to offer to you. All I can do is receive your grace and please forgive my sins and give me the eternal life that Jesus is offering. I want him to be my savior and I'm looking to him to give me righteousness because I have none of my own. If a person were to speak that way, that's the person that Jesus says he will never cast out. That's to come to Jesus. And if a person were to respond to Jesus' words and to the gospel with such humility, that's a believer. And what will be his testimony? Is he going to talk about how intelligent he is to make the right decision? No, he will be thankful to God for granting him the spiritual change needed to go to Jesus. Which is why, think of it, the universal prayer of Christians is supplication to God, asking God to save sinners, that first of all, and then it's also a universal prayer of Christians to praise God for saving sinners, to pray that God would save, and then once God has saved, to thank him for it, which means then there really is no such thing as an Arminian prayer, which would be no prayer at all of people praising themselves for choosing Christ. No, we praise God for his power at work in us, giving us the ability to do otherwise what we would never do, which is to come to Jesus in faith. The humility that I've described is not how many of Jesus' disciples, and talking now about this large group of disciples, verse 60, this is uh, beyond the 12, this is the people who have loosely tied themselves with the Lord, this humility is not how many of these disciples responded, which confirms their pride and self-sufficiency. Verse 66 says, after this, that is after Jesus spoke to them of their inability to even generate their own faith, their inability to make a decision to come to him, it says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And uh, this turning back is what we call apostasy. 
Apostasy is when you profess faith and then turn from it. For these disciples, they were those who had professed faith. They had claimed Jesus as their master. They had followed him. Some were physically following him around, observing him and hearing his teachings. Others were following him in the sense of regarding him as the rabbi that they wanted to associate themselves with, though they were not always with him all of the time. But after Jesus confronted their unbelief and spoke of their spiritual poverty to be able to do anything about it, they didn't want anything to do with him any longer. And they broke off their relationship with him. That's apostasy. And as this apostasy was taking place, Jesus took the opportunity to ask the 12, that is his, that, that closest group of disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, as the spokesman for the 12, gives us a response that stands in great contrast to that of the offended. He gives this amazing profession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. and We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, offers these edifying remarks. He Quote says, for a humble Jew to say of one whom scribes and Pharisees and, and Sadducees agreed in rejecting, thou hast the words of eternal life, thou art the Christ, was a, an act of mighty faith. But the question with which Peter begins is just as remarkable as his confession. To whom shall we go, said the noble-hearted apostle? Whom shall we follow? To what teacher shall we take ourselves? Where shall we find any guide to heaven to compare with thee? What shall we gain by forsaking thee? What scribe, what Pharisee, what Sadducee, what priest, what rabbi can show us such words of eternal life as thou showest? The question is one which every true Christian may boldly ask when urged and tempted to give up his religion and go back to the world. It is easy for those who hate religion to poke holes in our conduct to make objections to our doctrines, to find fault with our actions. It may be hard sometimes to give them any answer, but after all, to whom shall we go if we give up our religion? Where shall we find such peace and hope and solid comfort as in trusting and serving Christ, however poorly we trust and serve him? Can we better ourselves by turning our backs on Christ and going back to our old ways? We cannot then let us hold on our way and persevere, end quote. And William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he, flows, he follows the flow of thought well when he writes, quote, Peter answered him by asking him a question, Lord, to whom shall we go? Man is so constituted that he must go to someone. He cannot stand by himself. What Peter means is clearly this, there is no one else to go to. No one who satisfies the yearning of the heart. And he continues, Thou hast the words of everlasting life. The reference is clearly to what Jesus himself has said in verse 63. Peter knows that the words of Jesus are more than mere sounds or dead utterances. What alternatives are there, Lord, since you have the words of eternal life? Your words are the ones that are spirit and life. You have said so, and it is so in our experience as well. Your words are vital and dynamic, full of spirit and life, means of salvation, means of grace. 
And Peter adds, and we have believed and know, that is, we have begun to believe and we still believe. We have come to realize and we are still convinced. The verbs here in the Greek referring to a current state of being flowing out of the past. So that belief is not just something of the past, but true belief continues. It perseveres. The true child of God abides in Christ. What do, about what do the twelve still believe and of what are the twelve still convinced? that thou art the Holy One of God. Jesus is confessed to be the Holy One. That is consecrated unto God to fulfill his messianic task. He is set apart and qualified to perform whatever pertains to his office. He is God's Holy One, belonging to God and appointed by God. It was a most meaningful and glorious confession." End quote. As we close this evening, notice Jesus' answer, his response to this confession. Actually says in the wording, it's interesting, Jesus answered them. And uh, in some ways, this answer, this, is, this response is not what we expect. And in the end, it serves as a warning that confirms what has been said earlier about man's spiritual inability to do anything to save himself. Even the decision to come to Christ is not of man. See, in the light of such a wonderful confession from Peter on behalf of the twelve, we might expect Jesus to say something to them by way of praise. Men, it's wonderful that you actually understand what so many have failed to understand. I'm proud of you. Now, maybe we wouldn't expect that last part about being proud of them, but we anticipate him saying something in that vein that would indicate that he's happy about this decision that they, that they have made and, and, and he wants to encourage them in it. But Jesus was not Arminian in his theology. And it's striking to me that what he says is actually humbling. And it's either in response to a bit of a prideful attitude that's sensed even in Peter's confession, or it's at least meant to head off some kind of a prideful attitude that might be surfacing in the future. The words of Peter that could potentially be spoken with a proud heart are these words, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter's words could carry a tinge of pride to the effect that so many others have failed to believe, but not us. We are those who have believed and have come to know who you are. So many do not understand. So many are blind to who you are, but we have believed. We are different. We are not like the rest. Jesus, of course, knows their hearts. He knows the attitude. He knows the tone with which those words were spoken. Maybe it is here with a bit of rebuke, or at the very least, it's a warning when Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And this is a reminder to them that they did not choose him. Becoming his disciples was not their idea. They were not the ones who took the initiative. Some time ago, Jesus had approached them and said, follow me. And from an external point of view and from a spiritual internal point of view, from the heart, Jesus is the one who first took the steps with his disciples. Jesus is the one who calls. The Father is the one who draws. And those who come do so only because the Father acted in conjunction with Christ's call. And the result is that Jesus' disciples are chosen. Now, we can say, yes, that they chose Christ. 
Peter and the others believed, and they knew, and they followed, and they exercised their mind and their desires and their wills in becoming disciples of Christ. What they and what we must not ever forget is that he first chose us in eternity and then in time. Our choosing Christ must never become a badge of pride. It must never be something of which we boast. At the same time, there is a great warning here that people can join themselves to Christ in response to his call in a way that's only external. And it's not grounded in true belief and knowledge. Even the 12 that Jesus chose to be with him in his earthly ministry were not all chosen unto true faith. Jesus knew and reveals that one of them is a devil. He was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And Jesus highlights the fact that this Judas, and he describes that he's the son of Simon Iscariot because there was another Judas among the twelve. So he's, John here is highlighting the fact, or Jesus highlighting the fact that this is this one particular Judas. He's one of the twelve and yet would end up betraying him. J.C. Ryle writes by way of application, let us be very clear in our minds that the possession of religious privileges alone is not enough to save our souls. It is neither position, nor insight, nor company, or opportunities, but grace that man needs to make him a Christian. With grace, we may serve God in the most difficult position like Daniel in Babylon, Obadiah in Ahab's court, and the saints in Nero's household. Without grace, we may live in the full sunshine of Christ's countenance and yet, like Judas, be miserably cast away. Let us never rest till we have grace reigning in our souls. Grace is to be had for the asking. There is one sitting at the right hand of God who has said, Ask and it shall be given you, Matthew 7, 7. The Lord Jesus is more willing to give grace than man is to seek it. If men do not have it, it is because they do not, do not ask for it, end quote. And let me add that sinful men do not naturally have or want grace. For to want grace is to admit spiritual poverty. Grace is undeserved favor. To ask for grace is to admit that you have nothing to offer God. To ask for grace is to go to God with only emptiness, asking him to fill you. And the scary reality is that there are people who know about grace, people who know who Jesus is and yet are unwilling to give up the idol of self-sufficiency. And yet that must be done to be saved. And I trust that you have or would be willing to take Peter's confession upon your lips. But it is right at that moment that Jesus says, did I not choose you? Let us beware of how at the very moment we are confessing our faith, the spirit of pride can barge in and intrude itself by telling us we have done a wonderful thing to know and believe as we do. Let us beware of saying the right words as Judas did without having the right heart beliefs. Genuine faith is born of grace. And genuine faith says God alone can save me through his son Jesus. My only hope is his grace. My looking to Jesus in faith, my hatred of my sin and repentance, all of it is God's work in me. I have nothing to claim by way of pride in myself. 
And genuine faith also acknowledges, Lord, even my faith is imperfect. I find there is still pride in my heart that keeps wanting to assert itself. Lord, forgive my pride. Lord, take away anything in my heart where I am trying to take credit for my salvation and take away from your glory. For you alone are God, you alone are Savior, and all I can do is receive your grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace. Without it, we have nothing. Father, we thank you that even our choosing you, the exercise of faith, our repentance, all of these things are things that you have granted in your grace. And uh, Father, we um, pray that you would spare us from any boasting, any inclination to think that what we have done is, is something wonderful, that we have done somehow of ourselves. Lord, may all of the credit for salvation go to you as we recognize that we cannot come to, to you unless it is granted by the Father. Father, we are spiritually, in and of ourselves, in utter poverty. We acknowledge that. And all we do is, and can do is seek your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.